After reciting the Tashahud Ta'awuz and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih the fifth Ayyadahullah Ta'ala ibn Aziz stated, Today I will continue to present further details in relation to the Battle of Uhud. As mentioned previously, because the mountain pass was vacated, the disbelievers launched an attack from behind and overturned the outcome of the war. The attack of the enemy was extremely dangerous. What was the state of the resolve, courage and valour of the Holy Prophet at that moment? The details of this have been recorded as follows. When the outcome of the battle turned on its head and owing to a confusing state, the companions lost their composure and were in a state of panic and dismay. But even during the state of panic and dismay, and despite being surrounded by the enemy from all four sides, the Holy Prophet remained steadfast and firmly stood his ground. Seeing the companions scatter in all directions in a state of panic, the Holy Prophet would continuously say, O such and such, come towards me. O such and such, come towards me. I am the Messenger of Allah. All the while, he was being showered with arrows from every direction. In one narration, it is related that the Holy Prophet proclaimed loudly, meaning, I am the Prophet. This is not a lie. I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. I am the son of Awatik. In books of traditions and biographies, it is generally stated that the Holy Prophet said these words during the Battle of Hunayn. However, it is possible that he uttered these same words during Uhud as well as Hunayn. The word Awatik has been mentioned here. Awatik is the plural of Atika. And there was more than one woman by the name of Atika among the ancestors, that is, the maternal and paternal grandmothers of the Holy Prophet. Firstly, there was Atika bint Hilal, the mother of Abd Manaf. Secondly, there was Atika bint Murrah, the mother of Hashim bin Abd Manaf. Thirdly, there was Atika bint Aukis, the mother of Wahab, i.e., the mother of Hazrat Amina's father. According to one narration, there were nine women. Three of them were from the Banu Sulaim and the others belonged to other tribes. And all of them were from among the ancestors of the Holy Prophet Detailing this incident, Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed Sahib has written in the life and character of the seal of the Prophets as follows. 
when the companions of Abdullah bin Jubair saw that victory had been secured, they said to their Amir, Abdullah, now victory has been secured and the Muslims are collecting spoils of war. Permit us to join the army as well. Abdullah restrained them and reminded them of the strict order of the Holy Prophet But they were becoming heedless in the joy of victory and therefore did not abstain and left their positions saying, All that the Holy Prophet inferred was that the mountain pass should not be left empty until security fully prevailed. And now that victory has been clinched, there is nothing wrong with proceeding forward. Hence, except for Abdullah bin Jubair and five or seven companions, there remained no one to secure the mountain pass. When the sharp eye of Khalid bin Walid caught sight of the mountain pass from afar, he found it to be an empty field, upon which he quickly gathered his riders and immediately proceeded towards it. Behind him, Ikrimah bin Abi Jahl also followed suit with whatever was left of the detachment and quickly reached there. Both of these detachments instantly martyred Abdullah bin Jubair and the few companions which stood by his side and suddenly attacked the Muslim army from the rear. Assured of their victory, the Muslims who were unmindful and dispersed became flustered by this sudden misfortune. Yet, despite this, they managed to regain themselves and attempted to fend off this attack by the disbelievers. At this instant, a cunning enemy called out, O ye Muslims, the disbelievers have launched an attack from the opposing front as well. That is, an attack has been launched from there as well. Taken aback, the Muslims turned upon their heels again and in a state of confusion, without thinking, they began to swing their swords at their own men. On the other side, when Amra bint Al-Kama, a brave woman from Makkah, witnessed this sight, she immediately moved forward and took hold of the Quraysh flag, which had until now been laying in the dust, and raised it in the air. Upon witnessing this, the dismembered army of the Quraysh once again regrouped, and in this manner, the Muslims became completely surrounded by the enemy from all four sides. An awful state of panic erupted within the Muslim army. This much has already been mentioned in the previous sermon, how they regrouped, how the attack was launched and who raised the flag. Nevertheless, he further states, The Holy Prophet who was witnessing this entire site from an elevated location called out to the Muslims again and again. But his voice would drown in the noise and commotion. Historians write that all this transpired in such a short period of time that most of the Muslims even began to attack each other and no distinction remained between friend and foe. As such, certain Muslims were wounded at the hands of other Muslims. And as was mentioned in the previous sermon, Yaman, the father of Hudayfa, was even martyred accidentally by the Muslims. At the time, Hudayfa was present nearby. He continued to exclaim, O ye Muslims, this is my father. But at the time, who would pay heed? Afterwards, the Holy Prophet desired to pay the blood money for Yaman on behalf of the Muslims. But Hudayfa refused to accept and said, I forgive the Muslims for the blood of my father. Whilst narrating this incident, Hazrat Khalid Masih II stated, One dark and dangerous moment arrived when the Holy Prophet was injured. And such incidents transpired whereby the success of the Muslim army transformed into a defeat. During this battle, there was a mountain pass where the Holy Prophet appointed and posted some of his companions. He instructed them to not leave this mountain pass no matter the outcome of the battle. When the army of the disbelievers scattered and fled, these companions mistakenly judged that there was no more benefit in remaining there and that they should also go and take part in the fighting. Their commander told them that the Holy Prophet instructed them strictly not to leave the mountain pass. However, they replied, 
The Holy Prophet did not mean that we should remain there even when the battle is won. The meaning of his instruction was to remain here only as long as the battle was ongoing. But now that we have victory and the enemy is fleeing, we should also try to attain some blessings of the fighting. Hence, the mountain pass was left unattended. Hazrat Khalid bin Walid, who at the time had not yet become a Muslim, was a young man with a very sharp eye. When he saw his army fleeing, he glanced back and found that the mountain pass was unguarded. Seeing this, he immediately turned back and attacked the Muslims from behind. As this attack was completely unexpected for the Muslims, they went into a state of complete shock and as a result of being scattered, they were unable to successfully face the enemy. Whilst mentioning this incident in the commentary of verse 64 of Surah An-Nur, Hazrat Khalid Musi II stated, So let those who go against his command beware lest a trial afflict them or a grievous punishment overtake them. This is the translation of the verse. He then continues, Therefore observe how much harm was afflicted on the Muslim army because a command of the Holy Prophet was disobeyed during the Battle of Uhud. The Holy Prophet had appointed 50 people to guard a mountain pass. This mountain pass was so important that he called their commander, Abdullah bin Jubair Ansari, and said, Whether we are killed or are victorious, you must not leave this mountain pass. However, when the disbelievers were defeated and the Muslims were pursuing them, the soldiers assigned to guard the mountain pass said to their commander, We are now victorious. It is useless for us to remain here. So permit us to attain the blessings of taking part in the jihad. The commander explained to them, Do not go against the command of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet said that we are not to leave this mountain pass, whether we are victorious or defeated. I therefore cannot permit you to go. They retorted, It was not the intention of the Holy Prophet that we should not move once the victory was attained. He only said this to emphasize the point. But now that victory is at hand, we have no duty left here. They therefore gave precedence to their own opinion over the command of the Messenger of Allah and left the mountain pass. Only their commander and a few soldiers remained when the army of the disbelievers were fleeing. Khalid bin Walid happened to look back and found the mountain pass to be unguarded. He called out to Amr bin Alas. The two of them had not yet accepted Islam and said, Look, this is the perfect opportunity. Come, let us turn and attack the Muslim army. Hence, the two generals gathered their fleeing companions and cutting the flanks of the arm of the Muslim army, they climbed the mountain. The few Muslims that were left were no match for them and the enemies tore them to pieces. They then attacked the Muslim army from the rear. The attack of the enemy was so sudden that the Muslims, who were dispersed and relishing their victory, could not reorganize themselves. Only a few companions gathered around the Holy Prophet, who did not number more than 20. But for how long could they hold off the enemy? Eventually, owing to a unit of the disbelievers, pushed back the Muslim fighters, and the Holy Prophet was left isolated in the battlefield. In these circumstances, a stone hit the Holy Prophet's helmet, which caused a nail to lodge in his head, causing him to fall unconscious into a ditch. Some evil individuals had dug up a ditch and covered it to cause harm to the Muslims. 
After this, a few other companions were martyred and their bodies fell upon the blessed body of the Holy Prophet. It became known that the Holy Prophet was martyred. However, the companions that were pushed back by the attack of the disbelievers once again gathered around the Holy Prophet when the disbelievers moved back. They pulled the Holy Prophet out of the ditch. After a short while, the Holy Prophet regained consciousness. He sent men to all four sides of the battlefield in order to assemble the Muslim army. He then took his companions and gathered at the foot of the mountain. After gaining the upper hand, the Muslim army suffered a temporary loss because a few people disobeyed an order of the Holy Prophet Instead of acting on the guidance of the Holy Prophet, they relied on their own inferences. If only they followed the command of the Holy Prophet like a pulse follows a heartbeat. Had they thought that the result of following the command of the Holy Prophet meant that every person would have to sacrifice their lives, they would consider that to be of no significance. Owing to their own interpretation, had they not abandoned that mountain pass, which the Holy Prophet strictly commanded them not to leave, irrespective of whether they are victorious or they are defeated. Then the enemy would not have the opportunity to attack again and the Holy Prophet and the companions would not have had to endure difficulty. Thus, Allah the Almighty said that they suffered the consequences of disobedience and that was the result of it. Then in another place, Hazrat Muslim has mentioned an exceptional commentary of Surah Al-Kawthar. It is quite a detailed commentary in which he makes reference to this incident. He writes, During the Battle of Uhud, God Almighty gave the Muslims victory, after which the disbelievers ran away. Khalid bin Walid and Amr bin Alas, two extraordinary generals of Islam, had not yet accepted Islam and fought on the side of the disbelievers. The Holy Prophet appointed some companions at the mountain pass and ordered them strictly not to move from that place, irrespective of whether they were victorious or were defeated, whether they remained alive or were killed. They were not to move from that spot. The Muslims in those times and even today have a passion for jihad. When the Muslims gained victory, the people who were assigned to guard the mountain pass said to their leader, Please permit us to fight in whatever jihad is left. Islam is victorious and now there is no danger left. He replied, The Holy Prophet commanded us whether we are victorious or defeated, whether they live or are killed, we must not move from here. Therefore, we must remain here. They said, The Holy Prophet did not mean that even after victory, we must remain here and not leave. He appointed us here as a safety precaution. The enemy has now run away and Islam is victorious. Now there is no harm in us leaving this place and taking part in the jihad that remains. Their leader said, and he said this with great wisdom, when a leader issues a directive, the subordinate does not have the right to make inferences based on their own intellect. The Holy Prophet instructed us not to leave from here whether we win or lose, whether we live or are killed. He emphasized that we must not leave from here. Therefore, in accordance with his command, we must not leave this place. However, they insisted in their erroneous view and did not accept what he said. They said to their leader, you can stay here if you wish, we are going. Hence most of them left, leaving behind the leader and a few people with him. The army of the disbelievers was running away. Khalid bin Walid was extremely intelligent and always vigilant. He achieved extraordinary feats after accepting Islam and even for the disbelievers, he was an exceptional general. While he was running away with his army, he glanced over at the mountain pass and saw that it was vacated. Amr bin Alas was with him. He said to Amr, This is an excellent opportunity. 
Amr also looked back and turned his contingent around. Khalid bin Walid went around from one side and attacked the mountain pass, whereas Amr bin Alas attacked from the other. Slaying the Muslims on the mountain pass, they attacked the Muslim army from the rear. The Muslims considered themselves protected from the side of the mountain pass. They had become scattered and were no longer arranged in rows. They were pursuing the remnants of the enemy army when all of a sudden Khalid bin Walid and Amr bin Alas attacked from the rear, which led to individual Muslims confronting entire contingents. Some Muslims were martyred, some were injured, and those that remained lost their footing. Especially when the enemy continued the attack and reached the Holy Prophet only 12 companions were with the Holy Prophet Both these generals, i.e. Khalid bin Walid and Amr bin Alas, called out to their other commanders to launch an attack. Thus an army of 3,000 attacked in the form of a mob. At the time, the enemies were hurling stones, shooting arrows, and swords were clashing. All the while, there was a state of panic and confusion among the Muslim army. Given the circumstances, the companions offered unparalleled sacrifices, but they could not withstand an attack of a reinvigorated army of 3,000 men. In this attack, the Holy Prophet lost two of his teeth. A rock hit his helmet and a nail became lodged in his head, as a result of which he fell unconscious into a pit. The bodies of the companions near the Holy Prophet fell on top of him and his blessed body became hidden underneath. There was an uproar among the Muslims that the Holy Prophet had been martyred. The Muslims were already in a state of panic, but hearing this news, they lost all remaining composure. However, it was the wisdom of Allah the Almighty that when it became known amongst the disbelievers that the Holy Prophet had been martyred, they did not attack further. Rather, they deemed it best to immediately set out for Mecca and inform them of the good news that the Holy Prophet had been killed, God forbid. With regards to the bravery and steadfastness of the Holy Prophet there is the narration of Miqdad bin Amr in relation to the Battle of Uhud. He states, By Allah, the idolaters killed and inflicted many wounds upon the Holy Prophet. Let it be known, I swear by him who has sent the Holy Prophet with the truth, the Holy Prophet did not move an inch and stood steadfast against the enemy. A party of companions would come towards the Holy Prophet, but due to the onslaught of the enemy, they would become separated from him. In other words, when the disbelievers would attack, the companions would become dispersed and then regroup. The Holy Prophet would stand and continue to fire arrows with his bow and throw stones until the idolaters would be forced back and he remained steadfast along with a group of his companions. According to another narration, it is mentioned that the Holy Prophet remained resolute in his position and did not retreat even a single step. In fact, he continued to fight against the enemy and fired arrows at him with his bow to the point that the bowstring snapped and the piece he was holding was no bigger than his hand, i.e. the bowstring with which the arrows are fired snapped. Okasha bin Mihsan took the bow from the Holy Prophet in order to fix the bowstring but was unable to do so and stated, O Messenger of Allah, the bowstring is not long enough. The Holy Prophet instructed him to pull the bowstring and it would reach the end. Okashan narrates, I swear by him who has sent him with the truth, when I pulled the bowstring it reached the other end and I wrapped it around the arc of the bow two or three times. It was not long enough to reach the end, however perhaps miraculously it became long enough. Thereafter the Holy Prophet took hold of his bow and continued to fire arrows and Abu Talha stood over the Holy Prophet and shielded him. The Holy Prophet's bow then broke into pieces and he also ran out of arrows. Qutada bin Numan took the bow and this always remained in his possession. The Holy Prophet then began to throw stones instead. 
Nafi bin Jubair relates that he heard one of the Mahajireen say that he saw on the day of Uhud the arrows were being fired from all directions and the Holy Prophet was right in the middle of them. All of the arrows would fall away from the Holy Prophet. He further narrates that on the day he heard Abdullah bin Shihab Zuhri state, Show me where is Muhammad, for if he survives, then I shall not survive. And the Holy Prophet was right beside him at the time, and there was no one with the Holy Prophet. When he went on ahead, Safwan bin Umayyah rebuked him, upon which he stated, By Allah, I did not see him. Thus Allah the Almighty was protecting the Holy Prophet in this manner. He further stated, By Allah, he was kept protected from us. By Allah, there were four of us who left Makkah, and we had vowed with one another to kill him, i.e. the Holy Prophet. However, we were unable to reach him. Ibn Sa'd states that Abu Nimr Kinani stated, I participated in the Battle of Uhud along with the idolaters, and I had set five targets and would fire my arrows at them. I would look for the Holy Prophet, and he was surrounded by his companions and the arrows were falling to his left and right, and some of them would fall before him or go over him. Later, Allah the Almighty guided me towards Islam. He later became a Muslim. In relation to this, the Promised Messiah states, The life of the Holy Prophet in Makkah is an extraordinary example. The Promised Messiah was mentioning this with reference to the bravery of the Holy Prophet. From one aspect, he had to endure hardship all his life. During the Battle of Uhud, the Holy Prophet stood on his own fighting, and for him to proclaim that he was the Messenger of Allah at such a time demonstrated his stature, courage and steadfastness. Even while standing against the enemy, the Holy Prophet did not conceal his identity. In fact, he announced to let everyone know. The Promised Messiah further states, The hardships which the prophets and awliya, i.e. the saints, experience are not like the curses and humiliation that has befallen the Jews, which is owing to the chastisement and displeasure of Allah the Almighty. In fact, the prophets demonstrate a great model of courage. God Almighty did not have any enmity for Islam, but ponder how the Holy Prophet was left all alone in the battle of Ohud. The hidden wisdom behind this was so that the bravery of the Holy Prophet could be witnessed. The Holy Prophet stood all alone amidst an army of 10,000 and announced that he was the Messenger of Allah. No other Prophet had the opportunity to demonstrate such an example. In the Battle of Uhud, there was an army of 3,000. Because this has been written in a newspaper, it is possible that the Prophet Messiah referred to two battles. In the Battle of Ahzab, the disbelievers totaled 10,000, and in other battles, the enemies were in great numbers. Nonetheless, the main aspect the Promised Messiah is highlighting is the bravery and courage of the Holy Prophet, that even in front of the disbelievers, he stood there alone. No Prophet had the opportunity to demonstrate this example. The Promised Messiah further says, God Almighty is all-powerful and can bestow strength to anything He wills. Thus, the ability to witness Him is manifested through His speech. It is owing to this very divine discourse that the Prophets laid their lives before Him. Can one whose love is superficial do such a thing? No Prophet who has entered this field owing to this divine discourse then retreated from it or showed disloyalty. In other words, when they made the claim, they have remained firm upon it. People have offered many interpretations with regards to the incident in the Battle of Uhud. However, the fact of the matter is that this was the manifestations of God's greatness and glory, and apart from the Holy Prophet, no one else had the power to withstand it. The Holy Prophet remained resolute, whilst the other companions lost their footing. Just like the Holy Prophet was matchless in regards to his sincerity and loyalty towards God, likewise, one cannot find such an example of divine support as was granted to the Holy Prophet 
I will God willing continue to narrate further details in the future. I would like to mention about one of our long-serving missionaries, Dr. Jalal Sham Sahib. I led his funeral prayer yesterday, but I would also like to mention a few things about him in the Friday sermon as well. He was a very able, intelligent, simple and loyal life devotee. He recently passed away at the age of 79. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. He graduated from Jami Ahmadiyya with a Shahid degree in 1969 with very good marks. He initially served in various places in Pakistan and then upon the instructions of Hazrat Khalid Musi III Rahimahullah, he was sent to Islamabad, Pakistan to learn the Turkish language. Then in order to pursue further studies in the Turkish language, he was sent to Turkey in 1974 where he obtained a PhD in the Turkish language with very good marks. He later moved to the UK upon the instruction of Hazrat Khalid Musi the fourth Rahimullah. He had the opportunity to serve as a missionary here in the UK and Germany. Many people have written about him from Turkey, Germany and the UK. He had a very wide circle of acquaintances and many people knew him. He was later also appointed as the in charge of the Turkish desk here in the UK and continued to serve in this post right until his last breath with the utmost sincerity and dedication. Allah the Almighty had bestowed him with a great level of intelligence, aptitude and acumen. When he obtained his degree in Turkish, the university in Istanbul offered him a job as a professor. It was a very good job and they also offered a substantial amount in salary as well. Upon this, he sought guidance from Hazrat Khalid Musi the fourth Rahimullah and Hazur did not instruct him whether he should or should not go ahead with it but told him to instead pray and after deliberating on the matter he should make a decision. And so, he prayed before Allah the Almighty and gave precedence to his life devotion and subsequently rejected the offer. In 2002, while on an official visit to Turkey, he was arrested along with two other members for carrying out tabligh there. He had the honour of being imprisoned in the way of Allah for four and a half months. Among his notable achievements was translating the Holy Quran into Turkish alongside his colleagues. Apart from this, he translated dozens of the Prophet Messiah's books and many pamphlets used for propagating Islam into Turkish. He also wrote and published various books in Turkish. He was an academic and scholar who was passionate about reading. He studied the books of the Prophet Messiah and the Khulafa in great depth. He would take notes on the books. Aside from books of the Jamaat, he enjoyed reading books on other disciplines. He was perceptive and sagacious. And during his academic conversations with his friends and colleagues, he spoke very profoundly. When he was faced with a difficulty or he did not understand something, he did not allow arrogance to overcome him and he even consulted with junior missionaries to assist him. He had a God-given gift and skill of learning languages. Besides his native languages of Urdu and Punjabi, he acquired a PhD in Turkish and gained an extraordinary expertise in the language. He was also able to speak English, Arabic, German and Persian. In fact, on some occasions, when there was no one else available who was acquainted with the language, he would translate the proceedings of gatherings with Hazrat Khalid Musi the fourth Rahimullah into Arabic. He could also speak Saraiki. Early on, he would also do a live translation of the Friday sermon. Rather, it was not a live translation, but instead he would translate the sermon immediately after it was delivered. Or, uh, 
Those who know Turkish well praised his standard and level of vocabulary. He was also very skilled in public speaking and writing. Nonetheless, he possessed many excellent qualities. He fulfilled the rights of Allah alongside the rights of mankind to a high standard. Whether one was related to him or not, he treated everyone with love and many people have written to me in this regard. He was sympathetic and sociable. His meetings with others would leave lasting impressions on them. He had full faith and trust in Allah the Almighty. He discreetly helped the poor and those in need. He had a profound love for Khilafat. He saw true dreams and visions. He remained occupied in the remembrance of God. May Allah the Almighty elevate his station. Furthermore, may he grant his wife and children patience and fortitude and enable them to carry on his virtues. There are three other deceased members whose funeral prayers I will lead in absentia. The first among them is Muhammad Ibrahim Bambri Sahib. He passed away a few days ago at the age of 106 years. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. According to some records, his age was 106, while others put his age at 109. Nonetheless, he was at least 106 years old. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, he was a Musi. Ahmadiyyat entered his family through his father, Jodri Abdul Karim Sahib, who pledged allegiance in 1918 or 1919. Whilst mentioning his father's pledge of allegiance, Ibrahim Bambri Sahib, writes, By the grace of Allah the Almighty, my family entered the fold of Ahmadiyyat through my father. Prior to that, my father belonged to the Ahl Hadith sect. In 1918, his vision became very weak as he developed cataract. For his treatment, he went to the Noor Hospital in Qadian. Because my father was well known, people quickly heard that Chaudhary Abdul Karim Sahib was admitted in hospital and many people came to visit him. Master Abdurrahman Sahib, Meher Singh and other respectable figures also came to visit from time to time out of respect for Chodi Sahib. Those respectable visitors also began to preach to him. He further writes, It became clear to my father that Jesus has passed away. His heart had accepted that Jesus is not alive and has, in fact, passed away. Thus, his heart accepted that the promised Messiah was truthful because Jesus had passed away and the advent of the promised Messiah was the need of the time. This was the era of the advent of the promised Messiah. If he did not come then, then when would he appear? He pledged allegiance and guardian whilst he was still unwell. When he returned to his village, the people learned that he accepted Ahmadiyyat and came to meet him to express their regret. The people said, O oh, me Abdul Karim, if we had known you would become a Mirzai, or an Ahmadi, after travelling to Guardian, we would have allowed you to go blind as long as it prevented you from going to Guardian. His father would reply by saying, My sense of sight has sharpened along with my spiritual eyesight. He would also say, spiritual eyesight is more important than physical sight. I cannot thank Allah the Almighty enough for guiding me to the right path. I can openly testify that the promise of Sayyid is true. Nonetheless, there was a lot of malice in the hearts of the villagers towards the promise of Sayyid The clerics had poisoned their minds to such a degree that they would say, if you claim to be the Mahdi, we will accept you but we will not accept Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. Upon this, his father would say, Observe then that the fact that I have accepted him, and rightfully so, is a sign of his truthfulness. Thus, you should also accept him. In 1926, Bambri Sahib's father enrolled Bambri Sahib and his brother 
into Madrasatul Ahmadiyya in Qadian. They would travel five miles every day to come to school for their education. His father passed away in 1931 and his brothers tried to force his mother not to send the two brothers, Ibrahim Bambri Saib and his younger brother, to Qadian, saying that they had to travel very far and they would instead enroll them into a school that was closer. However, their mother said, I cannot do that. Their father enrolled them into Madrasa Ahmadiyya and now they will remain in Madrasa Ahmadiyya. And so he said that they continued going to Qadian. Then after completing his studies at Madrasa in Qadian, he joined Jamia Ahmadiyya, as at that time it was possible to enroll in Jamia after the seventh grade. Then in 1941, he privately completed his matriculation examination. In 1939, he passed the Moli Fazl exam. He had memorized the entire Qasida by the Promised Messiah. He had memorized many poems from Kalame Mahmud, Duris Meen. He had also memorized many quotations and was able to recite the references instantly. In 1939, after passing the Mawli Fazl exam from Punjab University, he dedicated his life. When he went to see Hazrat Khalif Tumsi, the second of the Allah Honor, he said, learn office work. On 1st January 1944, he was appointed as a religious studies and Arabic teacher at Madrasa Ahmadiyya. From 1941 to 1947, he served the community. For three years, from 1941 to 1944, he worked as Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmad Sahib's personal secretary. He then also served in Nazarat Bait al-Mal as Hazrat Muslim Maud had advised him to learn office work. Then in 1947, he was appointed as a professor at Talim al-Islam High School in Qadian. And then after the partition, he was able to serve in Talim al-Islam High School in Rabwa where he served until 1974. Then in 1974, he retired from the school and from 1975 to 1994, he served in Vakfi Jadid Department as an inspector, Vakfi Jadid Nazim Irshad. He also worked with Hazrat Khalid Masi, the fourth Rahimahullah, with Mirza Tahir Ahmed, and upon his instruction, he would visit various places in order to settle various matters. He undertook the responsibility of teaching Muallimin. He served as a local president of Dar al-Nasr area for over 50 years. He was the Imam al-Salat and he would also lead the Taravi prayers. He had memorized a large part of the Holy Quran. One of his daughters says, his treatment of his relatives was exemplary. The children of any of our children's relatives who lived outside Arabba would stay in our home in order to obtain an education. The secret to his long, blessed and active life was waking up early in the morning for Fajr, being occupied in the remembrance of Allah, walking, riding his bicycle to and from school and his work. He had a very simple diet and he always remained content and patient. He had immense and true love for the Khulafa. She says, all of us children were abroad When we would tell him that he should also move abroad, he would say that he needed to visit and pray daily at the grave of Hazrat Muslim Maud, and so he could not move abroad. He had a special love and attachment with Hazrat Muslim Maud. Whenever someone came to him requesting for prayers, he would first say that they should write a letter to Khalifa of the time, and then he would pray. Then he would raise his hands and pray for that person. Before sleeping, he would recite all the couplets of the Qasida Ya Aina Faydullahi wa Laydafani by the Promised Messiah He would recite it in its entirety before sleeping. Then she writes, My father often recalled a dream which his father, 
meaning his daughter's grandfather, had seen. He related, Ibrahim was climbing on top of a date tree and I was worried that he might fall. But as I watch on, he reached the top of the tree. And so my father interpreted the dream to mean his long life and increase of knowledge. Sheikh Mubarak Amasaib, who is a Nazir Diwan in Pakistan, writes, I was also his student and also taught alongside him at a school for five years as a teacher. In boarding school, Bambri Saib worked as a tutor and he worked there for a long time. Whether they were Ahmadi or non-Ahmadis, he would treat all the students of the boarding school with love and compassion. He would adopt a specific style of moral education in accordance with every student's attitude and personality. The students would also get attached to him very quickly and would treat him with the same respect and dignity as they would their father. He would spend majority of his time in the boarding school. He would lead the prayers. He would especially focus on the prayers of every student. And he was very loving and compassionate. I was also his student. And he was strict with me as well. In fact, when I became Nazriyala, I would remind him of his strictness and he would laugh. But alongside this, he was also sympathetic and his intention was always for reformation. He honorably performed the responsibilities of leadership and he would often remark, I know of all of the houses in which there is no male figure or the women live alone. When the men of the house are traveling, I reach out to all of the houses on the way to the market so that if they have any task in the city, they can tell me. He had a bag, a pen and a piece of paper. They would write the things that they need to bring. Then he would also drop things off and deliver the groceries to each house. If there was someone who wrote a letter, he would post the letter at the post office. If letters arrived, then he would bring them from the post office and would deliver them to the relevant house. If someone would ask him to read the letter out aloud because they could not read, he would also read the letter out for them. He was extremely trustworthy. He would not talk about the private matter of anyone with others. Since he was the southern of the area, some wives would present certain cases to him and would mention the weaknesses of their husbands. So without telling the husbands, he would search for a good moment and give advice and would explain the issue to them. Thus, the people in the neighborhood, whether they were men, women or children, would find him to be like a gracious father. This is the true manner in which office bearers should amicably live with others and should try to reform them. He would also advise missionaries that they should memorize poems as well and that they should read the poetry of the promised Messiah as it contains advice. He himself would say that I read the Qasida every night and then go to sleep. Thus, this also serves as advice for missionaries. In his life, one of his daughters was martyred as she came to Rabwa from a village and he endured this grief with great patience and tranquility. Then another daughter of his passed away in London and at the time he was unwell. Her body was brought to Rabwa. At the time, he again endured this grief with a lot of patience. Rather, he would himself instruct others to be patient. Nonetheless, he lived a successful life in every way and lived a long life. He would often say that the next abode is much better than this abode. May Allah the Almighty elevate his status in heaven and enable his progeny to carry on the good deeds that he performed. The next funeral prayer that I will lead is of Yusuf Jare Sahib. He lived in Ghana. He passed away some days ago. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. The Emir and missionary charge of Ghana writes that the deceased was a Musi and was a pious Ahmadi. He held different offices and was blessed with countless opportunities to serve the Jamaat. At the time of his passing, he was also serving as the chairman of two Ahmadi senior high school boards. He was attached to the Talim department. Prior to his retirement, he also served as the headmaster of the Ahmadiyya senior high schools in Potsin and Kumasi. Yusuf Saib 
was also blessed to serve as national sadr of Majlis Khutam Lahmdi in Ghana. During Hazrat Khalid Nusi IV's Rahimahullah tour in 1988, he was serving as Sadr Majlis Khudam Lahmadiyya. He served for a long time in the Department of Security. The deceased had strong ties with the Talim Department and always strived to better the education of the Ahmadi youth. One of his grandchildren is a missionary and is currently serving the Jamaat. May Allah the Almighty bestow him with mercy and forgiveness. The next mention is of Al-Hajj Uthman bin Adam Sahib of Ghana. He also passed away recently at the age of 81. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. Regarding him the Amir missionary in charge writes, he was a member of the institution of Wasiyat and was a very pious Ahmadi. He was regular in his daily prayers and was regular in offering his chanda. He would go above and beyond in participating in Jamaat work, was truly devoted to Khilafat and strived to inculcate this very same passion in his children. He would heavily focus on the religious and secular knowledge of his children. He also played a big role in the translation of the Holy Quran in the Fanti language. He translated the Holy Quran into the Fanti language and played a big part in this. His wife says that the deceased had a very patient disposition and was very loving. In 2012, by the grace of Allah the Almighty, he had the opportunity to perform the Hajj. He taught many members of the Jamaat how to read the Holy Quran. May Allah the Almighty bestow his forgiveness and mercy upon him and enable his progeny to carry on his good deeds. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْهُ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَلَشَدُوا اللَّهُ إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَلَشَدُوا أَنَّهُ مُحَمَّدًا نَبْتُوهُ وَرَسُولُهُ إِبَادُ اللَّهِ رَحِمَكُمُ اللَّهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَيَنْهَوْنَ <laughs> عَنِ